0: I am Kim Vanette, and you're listening to the Avalanche Hour podcast. This isn't about me. This is about empowering other people to do what they want to be doing and, and exercise their own goals. So, I always sort of thought that avalanches happen when you, when you really mess something up.
1: You are tuned in to another episode of the Avalanche Hour podcast. I'm your Canadian correspondent, Wes Gregg. I'm excited to be contributing to every third Thursday of the podcast. The Avalanche Hour is proudly presented by MND Safety, a global leader in avalanche hazard management, and our good friends at 10 Barrel Brewing, drink beer outside with additional support from Interwest Insurance. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. Well, here we are into April already. I have to start out by saying a huge congratulations to my first guest, Kyle Lamott, on passing his ACMG guide exam. If you missed that episode, head on back to episode 5.5 to hear about Kyle's path into the professional guiding industry. Way to go, Kyle. We knew you could do it. It was actually Kyle who introduced me to my next guest. In December, I had a Zoom call with the amazing CSGA guide, professional skier, and earth scientist, Kim Vanette. Kim is not only a badass skier, but she is also very passionate about sustaining our ability to enjoy these mountains. Enjoying the mountains is not something that Kim takes lightly. In 2014, Kim and a group of skiers were involved in a fatality at the Fairy Meadows Hut in the Selkirk Mountains of British Columbia. Kim and I discuss her journey through trauma, PTSD, and her path to recovery. Here is my conversation with Kim Vanette. Hey, Kim, how's it going? Great. Excellent. Now let's start off with who you are, and where you are, and what your current role is in the avalanche industry. All
0: well, the big questions. So <laughs> I'm. Uh, my name is Kim Vanette. I'm a professional spree skier and, as well, a CSGA guide. Um, I live in Revelstoke, British Columbia, where I'm at right now. It's snowing outside, as usual. And, uh, yeah, within the avalanche industry, I work full-time for Mike Wigley Heli Skiing. And have been tail guiding since 2012.
1: Cool. Now I know from our previous conversations that you're currently working on your ACMG guide certification. Is that correct?
0: Yeah. Well, first of all, I'm going to do the CSGA, so the Canadian Ski Guiding Association. I'm going to do the level two. Um, get me up front in the helicopter or cat, and then uh, with a bit more mentorship and progression, I'm planning on taking the uh, applying for the ACMG and and doing more touring and guiding in that area of the ski industry as well
1: now where did you first put your feet into a pair of ski boots and slide on snow
0: that's such a good question because I have a really cool memory so I very first started skiing at Badawa um, which I couldn't tell you if that was technically Trenton or Frankfurt uh, Ontario but I don't remember learning to ski but I did have repeating dreams or recurring dreams of apparently that incident. Cause in high school, I went back to Badawa for the first time in probably 14, 15 years and recognized everything and asked my dad about it. And he said, yeah, that's where you started skiing. That was your first time.
1: <laughs> oh, wow. Were you in any kind of organized skiing program at all or you just a recreation skier? You know,
0: not so much. I was more of a recreational skier, um, but I, we definitely were that unusual Ontario family that went skiing every weekend. Uh, my brother ski raced, but I was a figure skater from when I was four until I was 16. And right. uh, competed at the provincial level, so was pretty serious about that. So I didn't get into freestyle skiing because I said I spent enough time doing spins and jumps on my skates.
1: <laughs>
0: Which if I knew that now, oh my gosh, I would have gone into, it would have been such a good transition.
1: But. Yeah, well, if you would have been around where I was coaching, I, I probably would have sought you out if I knew you were a figure skater and been like, <laughs> hey, you need to come join our freestyle program. Now, when did you start Thinking about making skiing a career?
0: I'm still thinking about it. <laughs> um, <I don't, laughs> it's one of those things in my life that just sort of happened because, yeah, I was in Calgary. I was working as a geologist and uh, started competing in free ride competitions and just loved the direction it was taking me and loved pushing myself and loved um, jumping off of stuff, especially. And so, as I was uh, gaining more experience, Experience in that, I sort of got into the situation where I couldn't just do that on weekends and I moved to Revelstoke. And then same sort of thing with guiding. I, I started out by thinking, oh, I'm going to learn how to backcountry ski. So do the AST courses. And then I was like, well, that, that didn't really teach me enough to go out on my own. And so started getting into more and more courses. Next thing you know, I was tail guiding at Monashie Powder Snowcats and uh, taking on practicums kind of all over Western Canada and actually traveled to Europe on a practicum, guiding practicum as well. And stuff just sort of kept rolling and I was enjoying myself and opportunities were coming up and my education was progressing. And now I'm at a point where I have a lot of student debt.
1: (laughs) That's definitely a thing. So let's backtrack to your education side of the University of Western Ontario. So now, what did you study there and how did that bring you to Calgary? And let's talk a little bit about how you're combining your passion for the outdoors and your education.
0: Okay. So (laughs) coming out of high school, I didn't have a clue what I was doing, but I liked science. Um, So I took a first year general science at Western and serendipitously, my uh, academic counselor on my very first day was the um, glaciology teacher uh, and uh, department head, I think, at the time for the earth sciences department. So he convinced me to take earth science as an elective. And walking down the hall, there was pictures of mountain climbers and like at the time I rock climbed in Southern Ontario, but, uh, yeah, lots of mountain pictures. And I thought, yeah, I can get on board for that. And then was full in over my head with a second year of earth science. And one of my professors did some field work out in the Alberta and BC foothills. And so I had asked him if, if I could help him out with some of the, the research they were doing in the summertime. So I came out to Alberta, um, between my second and third year and then did that again between my third and fourth year. And uh, yeah, just found myself in the oil and gas industry, which <laughs> is a whole other conversation, but um, I've since recovered and gotten into renewables and policy development since then.
1: Wow. That's quite a transition <laughs> and, and always a, something. a positive transition at that. So then the next question that is on my mind is how do you balance that professional career with Another professional career in the recreation industry.
0: I don't know. Can you tell me?
1: <laughs> so it's a work in literally, progress.
0: <laughs> literally you watch the weather forecast and you make things happen on the down days. Yeah. Um, that, no, that's a really good question. It's an ongoing battle and it's uh, it's not a battle. It's a lot of fun. Um, I've certainly adjusted my life so that my priority is spending time in the mountains. Um, and then my husband's a, a skier as well, and he works from home, so the two of us both have home offices and um, spend time on. Like I said, if, if the snow's not as deep as Revelstoke normally provides, then we end up booking appointments in the office and and making things happen behind the scenes. So,
1: so then at at which point did you transition from just being curious about skiing and stuff like that to pursuing your avalanche training and? your fascination with diving
0: right in. Hey, I mean, like, um, I don't think, I don't think that I can truly pinpoint a time when I decided that this was going to happen. actually, yes, I do know the (laughs) moment. I know a moment. So I went on a, I went on a traverse with some friends and friends that I had taken courses with. And I had a little bit more experience with glacier travel than, than they had. And I, roped up, hopped out front and led across a a glacier and we skied a really cool peak. And at the end of the day, one of my friends came up to me and said, thanks for doing that. I don't really think I would have been able to do it if you didn't lead that. And I just had this moment for the very first time where I was like, this is really cool. Like, this isn't about me. This is about empowering other people to do what they want to be doing and and exercise their own goals. So Mm Yeah, it just, that that to me actually really sort of sealed the deal. And I try to keep that in my mind all the time now when I'm guiding. It's hard every day on snow, but I just, I, I, I try to make that my priority for sure.
1: Right. The heart of this conversation that I want to have with you is regarding an experience that's humbled or altered the way that you approach the backcountry. And I feel like in your particular situation, this story is like nothing I've ever read before I I told you yesterday in an email I actually had to stop reading it because I started to get emotional and I want you to share this story with the listeners on what happened and how you dealt with it then and how you're dealing with it now
0: okay that might take a little while.
1: That's okay. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but first of all, I, I, to, I shared this with my husband yesterday, as I find um, it's a little bit ironic to me that uh, I, wrote, I wrote a story of an incident that happened to me, and I've spent the last six years recovering emotionally and learning that I should be expressing my emotions and becoming more vulnerable. And it's funny to me that you stopped reading that story for fear of becoming vulnerable. <laughs> yeah,
1: I, I, I think I think the, the the family aspect of it is what really hit home for me. So that's... Yeah. Uh, no, yeah. That's, okay. That's a struggle, so
0: no yeah. more secrets. So... Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so the, so in um, 2014, I was involved in a fatality, um, an avalanche fatality. I was skiing with a group of friends, and we were a guided group as well. Um, the group itself, I, I didn't know the members of the group until the days leading up to our trip. Uh, we went to the Bill Putnam Hut in the Adamants or Fairy Meadows, as most people know it. Um, I had the opportunity to go... Um, from the guide and she was a guide that I had taken courses from previously and someone that I really admire, still admire very much, and uh, was someone that I really wanted the opportunity to learn from. Um, So I signed up for the trip as a guest and we all, uh, there were seven of us. So there were eight in total with the the guide Um, and we had a really great week. Uh, It was all females. I didn't know anybody before I got there and got to know them super well we we got along really really well we had similar goals all week um we were eight people but there were 22 people at the hut so there were two other groups there was a group of gentlemen from Colorado and there was a mixed group um that included a I think three or four ski guides from Whistler um yeah so they basically had the three different groups and and us ladies were kind of goofing around in the hut more than anybody else and trying to get everybody else to come out of their shell. Um, but then when it came to snow, we were far more conservative. We spent, there was a, there was one windy day. So we spent that day practicing crevasse rescue and just honing in some skills that we didn't otherwise have the opportunity to, to practice unless you take the opportunity. Um, yeah, and then we, we chased around a few objectives, but nothing too serious. And, uh, it was always just a group decision to, to make something happen or, or to turn around and, and, and go another way. So we had a really, really awesome week and, um, yeah, literally nothing to really write home about or complain about mostly just really great times and, and cool skiing. And, uh, it was talk about the weather kind of leading up to it we had um winds from a million different directions but that's kind of the way that it is I understand in that area um it definitely affected our our decision whether or not we wanted to go to certain objectives because just getting slammed by wind isn't always that fun um so yeah we just stuck around treeline and uh got up onto a few glaciers that were a little bit more protected, but didn't really venture too far away. And then on the on the last day, um, we were able to get up to an area called Friendship Call, which is pretty well known if you've been to the area. Um, pretty um, regular objective for a lot of people who stay at the hut. And everything up to the call went awesome. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so we climbed up onto the call We basically got up onto the, uh, the Gothic's glacier behind the call and, uh, it started to snow a little bit, but just sort of one of those convective squalls that happen in the springtime. And we just hunkered down. We literally, the guide was like, Oh, do you guys want to try this rescue tarp and threw the tarp over us? And we sat on it on our backpacks and we literally played two truths and a lie. (laughs) Just, (laughs) we were just having fun. Um, and then, Suddenly the the sun came out and so we were just noticing the yellow from the tarp got a little bit brighter. So we pulled the tarp off, made our way down the glacier and our plan was just to um, come over the ridge top and then ski down, kind of a couloir looking feature. It was a lot more open than to really truly call it a couloir, um, on the other side and back to the hut. So that was Friday afternoon. And as we were climbing up, um, I guess, Uh, yeah so as we were coming up it was the guide another girl and then myself and the guide just asked me to keep some keep my eyes on the group and she was going to go over and make sure that the entrance into our line was prepared or adequate or whatever um yeah and so I took my camera out I'd been carrying my SLR around all week and got some great pictures and I was just putting my camera away and I felt an earthquake, <laughs> is what it felt like, um, which is completely unreasonable. So I remember just looking up straight ahead, but the, what had happened was an avalanche behind me. And I turned around and uh, three of my friends were on the slab. One of the girls was um, home at the lodge that day. So there were seven of us on snow that day. Um, yeah, so I guess it would be three, three of them on the slab. And uh, one was buried, one was missing. Um, so I just remember looking at the, at the avalanche, it wasn't a very large avalanche by contrast to things that I've, that I've seen either in my experience as a guide or, you know, viewed. Through. Anyways, it just didn't seem like a large avalanche. And uh, so I just kept counting my friends over and over and I kept being one short, <laughs> but it just, nothing was making sense at that point. You, I just was kind of in denial of the reality of this situation being more severe than I thought it would be. Um, But I yelled avalanche and the guide came charging back over. She was there so fast and she popped onto the slab in front of me and was down with the rest of the girls before I even really realized what happened. And uh, for myself, I hopped onto the bed surface in my skis in touring mode which is really uncomfortable <laughs> for a lot of reasons. Um, but, uh, and I stopped and I looked and I thought to myself, well, maybe they don't need me. Cause again, in my head, I was still thinking, how could it be this bad? And then I looked down and they were all scurrying into action. And, and I was like, no, I've got to do this. And, and the downhill skier in me thought that I could that I should be able to just get down there easily, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but that wasn't Mm -hmm. happening. So I remember just taking my skis off. I don't even know where I stashed them and then just sticking my heel into the bed surface and running down to, to join my friends. Um, the, uh, basically for me, um, there was one of the girls who was on this lab had initiated a transceiver search. Um, one of the girls that was on the slab was looking for her lost gear and wasn't really was too sort of shaken, I think, to really have a cohesive picture of what was going on. And then the guide was there and then a friend of mine who was unaccounted for. Um, so I remember r- arriving on scene, shovel in hand, but I literally don't remember taking my shovel out of my pack. Um, the first thing that I heard when I got there was 3.6 wow. and I just remember thinking, nope. so every part of me through this whole process was just like this isn't as bad as it seems you know like it can't be that bad Uh, but anyways nonetheless um, it, it was an interesting coincidence for me that you know I think a lot of people have shoveling techniques stressed for them but in my training I had had an absurdly unusual amount of sort of mentoring or, or just like emphasis placed on that for me. So that was not lost on me in that moment. Cause I was the only one holding a shovel and we were unable to attain a probe strike at over three and a half meters depth. Um, so I just remember paddling snow away and just the entire time thinking that my friend was going to pop up somewhere else, you know, and just sort mm-hmm. of come up to us, tap us on the shoulder and ask us what the heck we were doing. <laughs> but uh, anyway so there were at that point four of us and the group from Colorado kind of had made their way coincidentally down the glacier we hadn't seen anybody else all week because it's quite a large area around that hut uh, but coincidentally they were in the same place at the same time and they saw us with their probes out so they came by and thank goodness for them because there were six or seven of them as well and we were calling them the tall boys all week because they're all <laughs> big guys and they had a lot of leverage. So they were certainly helping us with, with digging. They, I don't know what we would have done without them. Um, And then also I hadn't realized at the time, but my friend who was still at the top was able to actually attain voice communication with the third group. Um, So we were all in the same spot at the same time when this happened and uh, they were able to make their way down the ridge in a different direction. And skinned back up the glacier to us. So there actually were 18 of us on snow. Wow. Um, and we had recovered my friend in 21 minutes. So for a 3.5 meter burial, I think that's about best case scenario, mm-hmm. which is great. Um, I didn't talk much about the the slab itself. It was about 60 meters across, about 60 meters depth, and probably around 20 meters in length. Um, and for the most part that slab just splayed out across the, the glacier, but my friend had actually, um, coincidentally been positioned just above a terrain trap. So there was a wind scour that went around the rocks, um, along the ridgeline. And so she, um, was kind of last seen sitting on the slab with her hands behind her. Um, incidentally, she was wearing a, a avalanche pack, but, uh, the handle of the pack was actually tucked away. So the trigger was not available to her to use. Um, So make sure you know how to use your gear and uh, always have it available to you. Definitely not a problem or definitely not like a, a fault of hers, but just one of those things. Right.
1: Um,
0: Another coincidence to that day for me was that was the first time I ever wore my transceiver in a pocket. I had always had, my transceiver in a harness, and and we had talked about a whole bunch of different methods for that, and and I tried it out in my uh, in my pant pocket, underneath my jacket. Um, obviously, certainly, it wasn't an exterior pocket; it was an interior pocket, and there's there's uh, nuances to that as well. But it was just sort of interesting to me that it was the first time that I ever tried that, and it was also the only time that I've pulled my transceiver out on snow for avalanche purposes. Um, but, uh, regardless, um, yeah, so where were we at? So, yeah, so we had her out of a three and a half meter hole in 21 minutes. Um, I'm not going to go into much more detail about what happened. Just, you can ask me questions if you have them, but, uh, we were able to contact Golden Search and Rescue and, um, we actually had, there was a nearby rescue that was going on at the same time for some sled skiers, Um, there was a a burial and a broken femur that uh, search and rescue were responding to at the time we had a sat phone as well. So I'm not totally clear on whether it was a sat phone or a radio call that achieved contact, but uh, yeah, they were, they were out on snow with us. They being a paramedic actually from the city of golden Mm -hmm. um, and some search and rescue members were on snow with us within an hour and a half. So we were, we were pretty fortunate, all things considered to, to have things line up the way that they did with respect to the rescue.
1: Right. Now, I think one one thing that quite often happens, and a lot of us wonder when you're involved in an incident, how do you cope after the fact?
0: Well, the denial that I guess I had on snow just got more and more intense, I think, um, yeah, and and something that I'd like to say is um, this is a this is a story that I've talked about a lot of times with a lot of people, um, and I don't I don't know exactly what goes on in your brain, but something in the human body <laughs> allows you to just sort of compartmentalize these things. So there's certain facts that have to do with the story that I can just recollect and sort of regurgitate, and and I don't even really connect to exactly being involved in that situation right um even just speaking about it right now i'm becoming more emotional about the situation because i'm connecting to it right um but at the time yeah i was i was in really severe denial like i said it had already happened on snow and then we went back to the hut that evening um, all of us except for my friend who was airlifted to Golden Hospital and subsequently Foothills Hospital in Calgary. Um, we had a pretty strong idea of what was going on given what her state when we found her. Um, but yeah, we came back to the the hut and all of us were there, all of us were involved in the rescue. So we did a big debrief and we talked about how the rescue went from each of our point of views and what each of us were going through and 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 I guess too, for me, that started on snow, like part of that, that sort of realization started on snow at one point when we were um, still waiting on search and rescue. I had just a moment to myself where I had to step away. And when I did that, there was another guy who wasn't really involved in, in first aid practices who was just sort of shell-shocked. And I went and sat with him and I hadn't, sat, I hadn't chatted with him much all week and uh, I was like I need to talk about something and it doesn't it can't be this (laughs) and so I introduced myself and asked him where he was from and if he had a family and we talked about nothing you know and um yeah that that was kind of a profound moment for me because it was just like this a pretty good summary of like being in the thick of it and still just not being able to cope you know yeah and uh Yeah. So we found out the next morning that she had passed away overnight and yeah, the rest of my group just burst into sobbing tears and I was completely stoic. I didn't react at all. I didn't feel anything. My body had already started to shove it somewhere (laughs) and not allow me to deal with it. So I called my husband um, and told him what happened and I mean, he was glad to hear from me, but I i don't know how that made him feel. I still don't think we've talked about it very much. We yeah. will ask him tonight. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it just sort of led down this road of just everybody. It, it just, I made it everyone else's problem, but not mine, you know, because she had a family and she had a husband and two kids at home. So it was worse for them. And then she had one of her best friends on snow with her and it was worse for her, you know, and every time I turned around, it was just worse for someone else. And I was okay, even though I knew that I wasn't reacting, but I was okay. You know, like it just didn't, it wasn't something that was really throwing me and I wasn't reacting. So I was okay, (laughs) but I was never okay. I was just pushing it down and making it so much worse on myself, but I didn't know that. So I'd say that probably that continued for oh, year and a half, at least <laughs> maybe two years, maybe. Right. Um, where, yeah, I just thought, you know, that was the thing that happened and I'm safe and it kind of sounds insensitive, but I, I kind of just moved on, you know, and, um, it was something that, I always, I, I had the opportunity to mourn my, the loss of my friend. Um, we had a memorial for her um, in her hometown and I, I had a really, I, it was, it was a beautiful memorial and I got to know some of her friends and, and I just sort of had this realization that I was really lucky to know her and be there. Um, and that some aspect of it was a real gift for me, mm-hmm. but that was about as far as I took it. Cause I just didn't, I didn't. So what I didn't realize at the time is that I did mourn my friend's death and I did deal with that loss. But the thing that I didn't lose or didn't deal with was my own personal loss, which was just the the innocence that you have in the mountains before something really terrible happens to you.
1: Right. And I think you don't even know you have it. I, I think, you know, <laughs> Yeah, you're definitely in a unique situation for yourself and I, I commend you for being able to talk about it and share your feelings with- A
0: lot of therapy.
1: Yeah, <laughs> with me. I, I, I make I, jokes, I, but like literally yeah, like, uh, yeah, I think like no 60 one.
0: hours of, yeah, <laughs> right. real hard work.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I, I think that's kind of the thing that I'd like to touch on is definitely like being open about that, about needing that therapy, about needing to come to terms with your own self and it it's from what i can tell from the short time that we've had a conversation i mean it's just going to be a lifelong journey for you right this isn't something that you know 60 hours of therapy is going (laughs) to fix
0: (laughs) you should ask him how long it took me just to admit that it happened (laughs) right (laughs) but to that end of things so basically yeah i had um that was springtime 2014 That my friend passed away and, uh, the following season I was supposed to go to a guide training, um, in, end of November, but I just didn't want to be on snow in the back country with a group of people that I just hadn't really met yet. It was a new, a new operation for me. Um, and it was just, I still had so much fear cause I hadn't processed any of, like any of the fear. Like, I mean, it was just, that was that was one thing I definitely recognized was the fact that I was really scared. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, Cause another thing that I didn't really touch on is the fact that I always sort of thought that avalanches happened when you, when you really mess something up or, or not even really mess something, but there, you know, that there has to be something that you can point to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, certainly there's things we could have changed, but in this particular incident, one thing, it just wasn't a large avalanche. And the second thing is the snow kind of indicate, well, I mean, the snow indicated that we were following the right protocols, you know? Um, Yeah, you can always have more information and and obviously uh, the the feedback loop for that particular situation was pretty strong. So Mm -hmm. we did learn that we made mistakes, absolutely. Um, But the thing that's really hard to come to terms with is how do you recognize those things before they happen? and right. we're in in this particular incident I still through a lot of training still don't really know which factor I I mean myself or any of us should have noticed you know
1: yeah um, you can probably come up with a thousands could have should have yeah what ifs right as, for sure. as you normally would when you're trying mm-hmm. to cope with having an incident happening trying to figure out what happened there
0: Yeah. So, so that, that really, that gave me a pretty deep seated fear because then all of a sudden I couldn't control things, you know, like we followed the stats. We were conservative. We were all these things that everyone thinks that as long as you do those things, you're going to be fine. But we, we did, we did all of those things. Mm -hmm. Um, and we weren't fine. And that's something that I'm still dealing with. And I don't think that's going to ever really clear itself up, but that's, that's again, that's a gift. That's something that, um, I'm, I'm, I don't, do not i gosh, I wish that I didn't go through that, but in so many ways, of course. um, I've learned so many profound lessons that I wouldn't have otherwise learned. Um, so I'm, I'm grateful for certain aspects like that, that I take from this.
1: Yeah. But, I mean, I think it shows, uh, the ability to move forward. Obviously your, your strong personality has, has been a, a huge factor in your, I would imagine in your ability to, to cope and move on. Right.
0: And, and I mean, that was a huge factor in me being, me dealing with it completely inappropriate, inappropriately. (laughs) It's like, Mm -hmm. because I always have been perceived as someone who's strong and can handle things. And, um, yeah. So essentially what happened was, yeah, I didn't go to that guy training. Um, I turned down a bunch of opportunities to go backcountry skiing early in the next season because I was terrified. Mm-hmm. And then I ended up—I was in Japan with some friends on a free ride trip, and we had classic Japan Japan storm day. Yeah. And we were out in the backcountry and uh, hadn't really accounted for the fact that snow piles up real fast there. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, here storm snows like a few centimeters. Mm-hmm. There, it's like. 30, 40 centimeters, right? It's right. a lot of snow. Um, so I ended up on my very first day in the backcountry after an avalanche fatality being buried up to my thighs, which I've since never happened to me and didn't happen up until that point either. Mm-hmm. So that helped with the fear. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: um, yeah. So, I mean, just a whole bunch of stuff, just sort of. Nothing was really working out. <laughs> mm-hmm. I just, I was terrified and didn't really know what to do. And in all honesty, like the entire ski industry terrified me. I'm from Ontario. The mountains all of a sudden were so real and so big. And I, I don't think that I was ever the type of person to really take that for granted, but it was extra real now. Right. Um, so, I was still sort of dabbling in free ride competitions at the time um, and still training and still pushing myself for, you know, sponsor relationships and whatever. Um, I, uh, I ended up tearing my ACL and um, it was sort of a weird, I I tore my MCL at the same time and didn't have stability obviously at all. So couldn't, I was on crutches. I couldn't put any weight on my leg, but I had heard from multiple practitioners that I still had an ACL and I was terrified of the concept of surgery. So I thought, great, I'm not going to go get a referral to a surgeon. Why would I need that? (laughs) I had everything under control back then, as you can see. (laughs) Um, But uh, anyways, so it turns out I did tear my ACL. So I had uh, rehabbed my MCL, but never really felt healthy again on skis um, after that. And the first day of the following season. so that was 2016. in January, I, I wrecked my knee for all intents and purposes, um, rehabbed it, got back on snow in end April, just a couple groomers. Mm-hmm. Um, the following season, I think it was December December 4th. It was the day that I wrote that uh, the story that you read. Mm-hmm. Um, I was skiing from the gondola at Revelstoke Mountain Resort down to the Stoke chair. So I think that's about 40 meters of elevation. Big line,
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: and uh, I just kicked. The ski came off. I had my din set down so that I didn't uh, didn't hurt myself. <laughs> but I ended up kicking my ski off and uh, hitting my my leg. on a compression, and I f- I finished off my ACL. Um, and then I ended up being able to get in for surgery in January of that season, which was phenomenal. But so I, I so I, I blah. blah. So, I started uh, sports psychology because I thought I'm an athlete, and this is about training.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, and I was also scared of surgery. I didn't I had at that point never had a surgery and just was scared about the process. Um, so I thought that I would speak to a sports psychologist who had been recommended to me um, multiple times by multiple different people from multiple aspects of my life, but always same guy. So I finally got in touch with him and, uh, we talked a lot about the injury and blah, 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 So this was January. My, my, uh, surgery was February and it took me until November to tell him that I was involved in an avalanche fatality. Right. And we talked for an hour every two weeks.
1: Oh, right. And it's amazing that you, cause I was going to ask that as to whether or not you did reach out to a sports psychologist.
0: No. Um, and, and for me, that was part of it. Like, like I said, this gentleman had been recommended to me by a lot of different people and I had sort of had an admiration for the work that he had done because I had seen it through other people. And, and for me, that was the gateway. It was just like, I can do therapy because it's not about me. It's about my sport, you know, like I didn't have to face myself and my own problems at first. Um, a lot of really difficult work. Um, and I'm really lucky to have had his help with all of that. Um, but yeah, it took me close to three years to actually address my own personal loss. and and that came to me as a gift in one of my transceiver exams.
1: <laughs> oh really? <laughs>
0: yeah, so essentially after um, a couple of years of injury and a couple of years of actively avoiding guiding, Um, I was in a guides exam and had a transceiver exam, and it was what I realized is the first situation requiring any sense of urgency since the avalanche happened, Um, and I had a full physical flashback, and... Um, anxiety attack, basically, Right. I just had this feeling during my exam, I went from being completely functional and capable to just feeling all of the energy just like behind me and just having like a really kind of almost out of out of body experience. Like I just really didn't, every part of my body did not want to be involved in that process. Um, and then that sort of spiraled into I, I failed my exam by 23 seconds, they didn't give it to me. but uh that just completely blindsided me because i i really had been prepared skills wise up until that point um but it just hit me with a tidal wave of of guilt because i realized that those especially transceiver searches and rescue skills are, are absolutely imperative to any sort of mountain travel and I had just failed this exam at a pretty early stage in my in my career development and I just was overcome with guilt and which turned into panic which turned into sadness which turned into me crying more than I've ever cried in my entire (laughs) life um yeah which turned into probably a solid two years of doubting myself Right. Um, Because I all of this stuff sort of started coming out for me. And um, like I said, I I did a lot of talking type therapy, psychology. um, And I don't think that there's a like a a fast way to deal with it, you know, like there's no shortcuts. And for me, I definitely wanted to address a lot of this stuff. Um, But, you know, as I'm hearing myself talk about this, I'm thinking like, no wonder people don't do that. That sounds awful. (laughs) <laughs> you know, like that derailed like two years of my life. Yeah, No wonder people don't just like shove that memory away and try not to face it, uh, you know, but I, 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 but then I, it lingers. It never goes away.
1: Right. One of the things that I'm finding extremely amazing is the fact that you haven't given up, the fact that you haven't gotten so terrified and that you're continuing to pursue it and you're conscious of your own mental state and conscious of everything that happened. And you're still continuing to pursue your career as an avalanche professional and as a guide and seemingly still enjoying yourself and coping with the emotional side of things. And it happens for many people in many different facets of life with different times of loss and things like that but I feel like in this instance, it's not very common where you constantly purposely put yourself in a position
0: that that it,
1: that it could, (laughs) that it could happen again. And I mean, obviously the goal for all of us, whether we're recreationalists or, or professionals is to never be in that position. But I just commend you for being strong and it's amazing. It's inspiring. It's... Well, thank you. I'm
0: not sure that strong is the right word. I don't I, maybe it's stupidity, right? Like what am I thinking? <laughs> but I do appreciate that. It has been something that's been very prominent in my life and I put a lot of work into. Um, yeah, I mean, that was effectively when I had that flashback when I had that breakdown, that was me mourning the loss of a former innocence and ease that I had in the mountains. Yeah, and it took me a long time to come to terms with that. And, uh, yeah, I'm kind of getting the point now and and it's through guiding, and it's through pursuing education in in mountain travel that I've even continued to develop and evolve my feelings towards this whole thing. Right. Um, certainly, I mean, to touch on another super complicated concept and guiding is being a female in the industry has right. been difficult for various reasons. Not the least of which is I'm just really outnumbered. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, yes. But I've been encouraged to be what I perceive as more masculine to not allow these vulnerabilities to um, make me look like less of a leader. Right. Um, Cause I think that's all it is. I don't think that anybody ever wants you to, to not express yourself or, or any of that. I think it's just, you know, when you show up on snow and you're in charge of a group, you need to be in that leadership role and you need to be strong and you need to be Mm X, Y, Z that the client perceives as safe. And so exactly for me, the real struggle and the real, um, you know, aspect that's required a lot of strength is maintaining vulnerability. Um, because I have realized how important it is to me. Um, and, and how important it is for me, even as a form of self-expression. One thing that I would like to say, cause I've sort of gotten almost there. Cause we were talking before about how it's changed. Um, yeah, how it's changed my decision-making and, and that sort of thing. And up until I'd say around this time la well, January last year. So five and a half years, almost six years since, uh, my friend passed away. Um, I was still holding myself back and I was still sort of, you know, if I didn't pass the exam, then I didn't get the responsibility of leading a group and I couldn't lose someone. Right. You know, and and there was a lot of that self-sabotage that was happening and um, it's made me feel really stupid for years because I've failed a lot of exams and I'm the only one to blame for that. And it's so silly because it's stuff that I can do. Yeah, you know, whether it was that transceiver exam, whether it's rope skills, whether it's just like, um, terrain management, decision making, it's just, you know, <laughs> what people don't seem to understand, and you, it doesn't matter how many times you say it, or who you hear it from, is that you have no control over your subconscious mind.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Right?
0: And, and, and it's. I think people think that I, I consciously made these decisions to throw myself under the bus, but I definitely didn't. Something inside me was, had decided that that was a good mechanism to keep me safe, because exactly what I just said. If I didn't pass the exam, I couldn't take the risk, and I couldn't be involved in a bad situation.
1: And it's funny that you say that, because I, I thought the same thing to myself when you talked about, about injuring yourself. quite soon after where Mm -hmm. I've experienced the same thing as an athlete and as a coach where the injury becomes the excuse for not being able to proceed.
0: For sure. You, I mean, earlier when you were talking about your your freestyle career and and injuries and then you said, oh, and then, and then I went to university because I kept being injured. It's like the whole time that was the path, right? (laughs) It just took the, the injuries and the moments in order for you to achieve the path.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And, and there's so much to it. And it still happens to this day. And I mean, I, I don't think everybody's conscious of that because the other thing that comes to mind. or well,
0: willing to admit it.
1: Exactly. It, it
0: sucks to admit, doesn't it? It's totally. <laughs> that you have control over something like that. Yeah. No.
1: Is that intuition <laughs> and that thought within you. Some people are in tune with that. And you've been quoted on this probably every time you talk about this whole scenario about when you were sitting on the couch and you say, when we get home, things are going to be different. Yeah. And so
0: leading up to this event, so, cause you know, the story that I've written, <laughs> <laughs> um, but leading up to this event, um, the, we, it was a Saturday to Saturday trip and it was Thursday night. And I was sitting on the couch in the living room and all of a sudden I just went, Whoa. And my husband was there and one of the girls on the trip was there and they said, what? And I said, I just had just like heard a voice, like my own voice. Like I just had this sort of like strange thing that something told me that things are going to be different when we get back. And they were like, what do you mean? Hmm. (laughs) Um, And for, for myself, my, my dog was sitting beside me. And the only other time that I felt that way before um, a, a different dog got hit by a car and, uh, and I had that sort of, like, I really said bye to him before I left that day. Like I, I, something, I just had this feeling. Mm-hmm. And then, so when this happened where I heard this sort of like, things are going to be different. Um, I, I just thought, yeah, I just said to my husband, just take good care of the dogs, you know, <laughs> like, right. yeah. I don't know. And then a friend of mine was like, well, you know, she was going on the trip and she was like, should we be scared? Should we not go? And I was like, well, I mean, I heard when I get back. Like, never <laughs> occurred to me that I kind of just gotten a really bad injury that changed my life. But, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but for me, I was like, I, I'm going to be here, you know, but, right. and, and it was something where it was just like, I don't know how many times has anyone had those sort of fleeting feelings or a weird dream or something where you're just like, you think it's mean something, but you don't really. And it, It took me a couple, I think, in like a week afterwards before I was like, "Oh my god, that's what that meant." Right,
1: right, right. And and, you know, I I mean,
0: who wants to be that crazy person too?
1: (laughs) That crazy person. (laughs) But with that in mind, do you do you find that affects some of your decision making now? Do you find yourself going with your gut a little bit more? Oh, I try to listening to that voice Mm -hmm. a little bit more than perhaps you would have. Yeah. Prior.
0: Yeah. And I mean, we had incidents on that trip. Like there was one time that we were going to boot pack a cool wire and ski it. And it was actually a really cool experience because we had done uh, just a neat uh, glacier line that was like steep over the toe of the glacier. And uh, we sort of like were roped up into it. And anyways, it was just a cool line. And so we were really excited about it and came back down and half the group was like, Oh, that's great. Like, that's enough for me. I'm going to go to the lodge. And then there were four of us that were They decided to go and ski this cool wire and we're like, okay, this is, you know, we're ready for this now. And so as we were kind of, um, heading towards the, the entrance, um, my friend who ended up passing away, she was in front of me and she was like, Oh, I can feel your energy pushing me right? because we were just excited and, and, you know, um, and we talked about those little, like, energetic connections that you build with your group. And, um, Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to, I'm not going to say that I try to be any type of psychic or anything like that. Like I'm not on that level with this stuff, but I think fundamentally that, uh, you know, you can tune into those little nuances and just like she was saying, she could sense my energy. And then Mm -hmm. when we were approaching the school war, um, you know, I just kept thinking, you know, I could feel the hair on my neck stand up. And, Mm -hmm. and to me, I was like, um, I, I guess as another coincidence, my my friend uh, who passed away had mentioned multiple times that week that she didn't want to die in an avalanche, right? And that she wanted to return home to her family,
1: right? Which I've
0: really never heard anyone else verbalize. Um, that's not really something that people talk about when we're when we're out and about in that type of circumstance. But, mm-hmm. uh, anyways, yeah. So when we were approaching that core cool that day, I just sort of, like I said, had those the hairs on the back of my neck standing up, and I was just like, nope, we gotta get home to our boys yeah um yeah so I, those types of little things, like I certainly try to listen to my gut i think I think that's really important when you just have those like really subtle premonitions that
1: and I mean, the debrief in hindsight that those feelings always come out, you know, totally. you can't speak to it at the time. you know, you think everything that right. you're doing is is sound and justified and and based on good decisions until. Mm-hmm it's not a good decision.
0: Yeah. 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 And you know what? Like, I don't know how to draw any conclusions about that, but, <laughs> but I think, right. Cause I think that's, that's part of my training too, is like, yeah. okay, so why are we talking about this? Um, but, but I do think that it is such an important factor for people just to be cognizant of. Um, and you think about how many times also that people, there's those people who just completely obliviously walk into a dangerous situation and are fine. And then there's the people that are in a relatively tame benign type of situation who are terrified who end up being involved in a circumstance. Right. And it's like, yeah, what, what happened there?
1: Exactly. Exactly. I mean, this has been such a great, a great conversation. We could easily probably go on for another hour. (laughs) I I, I said, I said to my wife yesterday, I said, Oh, I'm so excited to talk to you about this whole scenario. I, I already knew you were a badass gear from what I'd read. And then, having read the description of, of the incident and having our conversation, it, the, my respect for you is even higher than it was before mm-hmm. we started this conversation. It's amazing. Um, I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, no problem. So, now where can people get in touch with you if they need to or if they would like to, if they want more information about? your business or if you care to share that information or you don't want to share that information.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, super quickly. Um, yeah. I mean my personal uh, Instagram account is a really easy way for people to reach me and um, see a little bit more about what I do on, on my skis. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's on Instagram, Kim underscore Vinette. And then I just started a new business Um, So this summer I developed a business called Affirmative Sustainability. So my background is in, like I said, earth and atmospheric science and energy production. Um, But then also over the past 10 years, I've worked with a lot of different marketing departments in the ski industry. And so I've built a business that helps to integrate sustainable processes. So um, if you go to www.affirmativesustainability.com, it explains a lot about my services and what I do there.
1: Right on. Awesome. Yeah.
0: And if anyone actually would like to read the story that I wrote about the avalanche I was involved in, I I did end up writing a very detailed summary of what happened. And and like I said to Wes, I'm I'm really grateful that I took the time to do that because obviously certain memories are are fleeting. And so every once in a while I revisit that myself, but I'd be happy to share that with anyone if you're interested.
1: That is awesome. I can't thank you enough for taking the time to talk to me today. And, um, it's been such a great conversation. I look forward to sharing it with our listeners.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Wes. And thank you. I I do appreciate the opportunity to talk to you about it. Um, every time that I do really go deep about it, (laughs) um, it's a, it's almost a bit of a a relief for me as well, you know? And, um, yeah, it was obviously a, a terrible situation and a pretty troubling incident that's going to continue to resonate in my life but uh Mm -hmm. any opportunity that i have to share some aspect of of its value it feels to me like i'm sort of doing some sort of tribute to my friend that we
1: lost absolutely yeah no and i think the listeners will will be able to connect to that thank you so much kim for taking the time and uh yeah you enjoy the rest of your evening
0: well you too thanks so much
1: what a great conversation with Kim and I hope you all enjoyed it as well if you want to know more about Kim you can find her online at AffirmativeSustainability.com or on Instagram at Kim underscore Vinette. but you can find all that information in the show notes as well and don't forget to follow us on Instagram, Facebook and head on over to the website TheAvalancheHour.com to stay up to date on guests and offers if you like the podcast subscribe rate and drop us a review then maybe tell a friend tell that friend to tell a friend the music in the background is provided by my good friend chris kaplinski and of course thanks to mike t for the artwork And until next time stay tuned stay safe and keep having fun out there